Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Alex Zaharoff-Royt and Talkin' Tech on today's News Talk, TNT. Thank you for joining me on Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov-Royt. There's always momentous things going on in the world of technology, and this week is no exception. Now, our guest this hour is Steve Perlman, who has worked at Apple and Microsoft, who is an inventor working on the cutting edge, working on cloud gaming technologies a decade ago that we now take for granted and who has revolutionized the way wireless technology works. And we'll be speaking with Steve from 10 past the hour today. We were also due to speak with Australia's PR agent to the stars, Max Markson, about 50 years in PR and how technology has changed everything in that time. But due to unforeseen circumstances, we've had to push that interview to another week. So we're actually very lucky to have a full hour with Steve. Okay, so what are this week's top tech news stories? Well, Google's Gemini AI has image generation capabilities, but people have been noticing something remarkable. The images keep on wanting to show what's known as diverse results. So if you ask to see an image of America's founding fathers, uh, who were predominantly a group of white men, people of African-American descent are being shown. I mean, there were uh, black founders, but they're not the sort of the standard thing that you think of when you see uh, that in your mind. People also ask for a picture of the Pope and a black man is shown. Another prompt asked for images of German Nazi soldiers from 1943. And while one white man is shown, the next image is of a woman of Asian appearance. And then a man of black appearance is also shown, which simply isn't what you expect to see at all. There's been obviously a huge uproar about this uh, with people naturally accusing Google of being woke and inserting diversity uh, equity and inclusion everywhere. There are posts on X that where people have asked for images of a Ukrainian woman in native dress. And G- Google's Gemini continues inserting the word diverse into its responses and, and showing diverse results when people actually don't want to see that at all. Indeed, one joke going around X was that Gemini finally displayed a white person when asked to show an image of US Supreme Court Judge Thomas Clarence, who is, of course, an African-American. So uh, Google has had to pause the capability, issuing a statement on X saying, saying, we're working to improve these kind of depictions immediately. Gemini's AI image generation does generate a wide range of people, and that's generally, they say, a good thing because uh, the people around the world use it, but it's missing the mark here. And also Google's communications account on X also stated, we're already working to address the recent issues with Google's uh, Gemini image generation feature. While we do this, we're going to pause the image generation of people and we'll re-release and improved versions soon. Now, this all comes at a time when Google has launched an open source version of its AI. But of course, the question is whether anyone will trust it. Now, Elon Musk was quick to fire off a post on X where he stated, I'm glad that Google overplayed their hand with their AI image generation as it made their insane, racist, anti-civilizational programming clear to all. In In another post on X, he noted, I just typed a Google query on my phone and the top two choices are pro censorship. Yet another post by Elon Musk stated, a senior executive at Google called me and spoke to me for an hour last night. He assured me that they are taking immediate action to fix the racial and gender bias in Gemini. Time will tell. Now, with Grok's 
uh, with Elon Musk Rock now coming out with version 1.5, this is quite the blow for Google's ambitions to become a trusted AI system. And indeed, Gartner has just reported that uh, it expects generation gen, it's generative AI chatbots set to cut search engine use by 25% over the next two years. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Google is so uh, intent on getting Gemini out there because you can see it's lunch being eaten by OpenAI and Perplexity.ai and other AI systems. Uh, Gartner says that uh, generative AI chatbots pose a serious threat to search engines. Uh, and a part of the reason of this is, of course, because you get the 10 blue links in Google, but we haven't had that for a long time. We now see ads, we see sponsored links, we see spammy results, we see maps, we see all this extra information, uh, shopping deals and all the rest. And people are obviously trying to game the results to become higher in uh, search results. So this reduces the reliability of results. And given that AI chatbots give you an answer and increasingly point to the sites that got those answers from, well, using generative AI for answers is a smart use of your time and a great demonstration of why AI is good, despite, of course, the misinformation that Gen AI bots can spout. But twas ever thus, just because it's on Google or Wikipedia doesn't necessarily mean it's true either. So we'll yet to see whether this will actually be the, the case or not. And we can't forget that Google has its own you know, Gemini, which is giving results at the very top. I mean, Google wants you to use Gemini instead of OpenAI or anything else. Uh, so we just have to wait and see uh, what's going to happen here. But uh, it seems obvious that uh, generative AI is only going to become even more uh, an everyday part of our lives. I mean, I've got plenty more news at uh, my website, techadvice.life. There's AI chatbots from Stanford University that can now scan your brain uh, with using the MRI scans. They can scan that. They can, they can tell with 90% accuracy whether you're a, a man or a woman. Uh, so that seems to also throw away the, uh, the assumption that just because you put on a dress, you're a woman, and just because you put on a pair of pants, you're a man. Uh, there's actually another company called Grok with the Q. They've been around... Uh, since 2016, so they predate Elon Musk rock by eight years, and uh, they have a, a different system um, called an LPU or a language processing unit to run their model. This is different to the graphics processing unit that NVIDIA makes and sells for up to $30,000 each, uh, which are usually running AI models. And um, this is uh, given, you know, NVIDIA a $1 trillion uh, you know, valuation. In fact, it's now a $2 trillion valuation for NVIDIA, showing just how incredible, how insane this whole AI space has become. Now, to showcase how fast these new LPU or language processing units are, ChatGBT 3.5, which launched in November 2022, was able to handle 40 tokens per second. These new chips can handle 500 tokens per second, which is more than 10 times faster and better. And competition is running hot. We know that uh, Sam Altman wants to spend five to seven trillion dollars in uh, creating all sorts of plants. I mean, Singapore wants to invest 740 million to boost AI ambitions. Uh, the company's deputy prime minister wants to um, you know, make sure that uh, Singapore remains the hub, the gateway to China and the gateway to all that investment. And uh, they, they say that the access to advanced chips is so crucial to AI development and deployment. And so uh, they want to get all those people to come along. We also talked about how Google wants to spend $25 million uh, pounds rather in the UK or 25 million euros in the UK. But Microsoft wants to spend 3.2 billion with the B euros at its German AI operations and another $2.1 billion in Spain, this is US dollars, over the next two years. So there's so much 
money going into AI. It's it's just incredible, and uh, it's not going to stop. Now, before we get to Steve, I just want to mention that uh, TNT Radio is an independent global news talk station that does what others only say that they do. TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world is doing what we do, crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. In two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. It's a critical time and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. So we're now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to tntradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. Now we're going to take a quick break and after the break, Steve Perlman, this is TNT. TNT. Talk that matters. For once, we just need to do what's best for the same country and not what's best for the world. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Ah, it's now time to welcome my next guest, Steve Perlman. Steve is an intellectual giant, an entrepreneur and inventor devoted to pioneering internet, entertainment, multimedia, consumer electronics, and communications technologies and services with over 35 years of technology development experience in multiple startups and as a Microsoft division president and Apple principal scientist. Now, not only is Steve the inventor of the core video technology that enables QuickTime, which is built into and used today in all of Apple's products, among a range of other inventions, holding over 250 US patents in a range of fields, Steve is also the inventor of the Artemis P-Cell, a breakthrough wireless technology with uh, that works with unmodified LTE, which is 4G and 5G devices. And that is part of what we'll be talking about today. So, Steve, welcome to Talking Tech with me on TNT. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's wonderful to speak with you again. And thank you for taking the time. Now, I do want to ask you about AI and the challenges of invention and innovation. But we first have to start with Artemis Networks and how it has turned sure. conventional wisdom over cellular networks on its head. So how do today's cell phones communicate with towers? You know, why is this a huge problem? And, you know, people who are at a stadium or at New Year's Eve or anywhere that there's too many cell phones know that you, you, your connectivity can just die. So, so um, you know, what is the problem? Let's go with the problem first before we look, talk about the solution. So the challenge we have is that... Um, we're still building our wireless networks, 4G and 5G, using mm. cells. There's yeah. a coverage area that is covered and everybody in that cell is sharing the same capacity of the network and the cells inherently interfere with each other. And so um, that was fine when we were dealing with phone calls, uh, very limited video, audio and things like that. But now as we're, uh, increasingly people are expecting to be able to do live video calls, whether it's FaceTime or some other technology or, whether they're um, they're streaming YouTube or you know so many people are using TikTok, et cetera, it's putting demands on the networks, which just overwhelms them, and that's why we get all choppy video and so forth. It's of course particularly obvious when you're in a very high density situation, like in a stadium, arena, or in a dense area of a city, that sort of thing. And um, the problem is you cannot continue to densify cells as you as you make them smaller and smaller. What happens is they become less and less efficient. And so we've essentially hit a limit. And then the other problem is there's really no more spectrum to keep allocating because as you get higher and higher in the frequencies, 
The radio waves don't penetrate. They don't penetrate your hand. They won't go through into your pocket, et cetera. So um, we're at a point where we are, we've basically used up the capacity that's available. And we have new technologies, things like, uh, you know, streaming video to headwear and so forth that we're going to be seeing come soon that is going to be uh, dramatically increasing the demand on mobile networks. And there's really no technology and no spectrum to, uh, to deal with that. Yeah, I remember actually I was the best man at a wedding and I was looking up uh, interesting uh, things to say and I saw that old, funny old joke that I've seen many times before where it said there's the three rings of marriage, the engagement ring, the wedding ring and the suffering. And so I changed that. I said, there's, there's a fourth ring of marriage now. Uh, you've got those first three, but the fourth one in the age of Netflix and chill is the buffering. And uh, hopefully... <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully your problem, your solution is going to fix that problem. So now look, there's a great video on Artemis.com that explains how it all works. And there's 150 technical white papers with all the detail. But uh, how does Artemis completely solve this problem of, uh, you know, that bandwidth just being split amongst many people? How do you give everybody maximum bandwidth? Well, we've turned the problem around. You know, when you have individual cells, what the cells interfere with each other, and that's a problem. So you try to mitigate the interference, but that in itself is what ends up limiting the capacity. What we do is accept the fact that interference is inevitable. And then we have, we deliberately create transmissions that interfere with each other. And we carefully calculate what we send so that as the, these interfering signals add up together, at each point in space where someone has a phone or a device, it creates an independent channel for that device. So it allows all of the devices to use the spectrum at once without interfering with each other. So essentially, we've exploited interference rather than suffer from interference. And that allows us to increase capacity to an unlimited extent in the same amount of spectrum. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think that the announcements that are coming about 5G network slicing, where they can sort of slice part of the network off to give people paying more money uh, a better experience, which actually makes me wonder about all that net neutrality stuff. I mean, your technology sounds like it makes that effectively obsolete and not required. Well, yes, I mean, it. right now, sort of, and this is what we've done with wireless th throughout the years, we, we're all, we're very focused on trying to primarily to increase the capacity to one device mm. and then divide it, then divide that up. So you try to get up to as high a data rate on one device, then divide up among many devices. But of course, nobody needs on a phone, a gigabit per second on one phone, right? Mm. But if a phone has received such a high data rate, it's gonna use a lot of power, and it's gonna require a lot of electronics and of course use a lot of spectrum. What we do instead is we basically give all the devices the spectrum that each one needs at once. So that you, you know, if you're on an individual phone, maybe you only need, you know, 10, 20, 40 megabits a second or something like that. Mm -hmm. And while you're getting that data rate, so is everybody else in the arena. Okay, as opposed to having say, trying to have a hundred a few hundred megabits, which are then dividing amongst uh, a lot of people. So it's a different way of looking at the problem, but it's some that's that, but it's a way of it's a way that's far more suitable for the way people actually use capacity. Now, you and your partner, Baldwin Networks, have just installed in New York Times Square a uh, proof of concept demo, as well as also doing this in a New York subway station. So tell us yes. about these two announcements, which have only come out this week. Yes, it's really exciting. So, you know, we've been uh, doing uh, demonstrations in all you know, um, uh, venues and uh, in other small areas. But uh, Bolden Networks, who you may have heard of, it's a very, very large neutral host provider, uh, one of the largest in the world. Uh, they partner with us. They uh, looked at the technology, they assessed it, and then their installers 
put it in, not us. And and they established, you know, what does it take to really put it in and see that it really works. And so we did a proof of concept with them in Times Square. And uh, there were delivering over 700 megabits per second in just 20 megahertz of spectrum. Through comparison, 20 megahertz of spectrum using conventional 5G, the most advanced one, ones there are, will deliver less than 100 megabits a second, you know, probably closer to 50. And here we are delivering 700 in the same spectrum. And then we also do deployment in the Times Square subway station, one of the most, uh, one of the busiest subway stations in the world. And one of the things, in addition to the performance that we achieved, was very exciting and something that, that Bolden noted, and it's in the press release, they wanted to talk about it, is that it took less than an hour to install the P-cell radios at each location. Normally when you're installing, um, you know, small cells or any mm -hmm. kind of cells, and especially in an urban environment, it may take a day or more to install one cell. So the idea that you can put this thing in in an hour, and so this Times Square was lit up in less than a day. The subway station was lit up in less than a day and it was running at higher performance than any other network in the world. So that to them was just this huge revelation. And of course it's because there's no cell planning required for P-cell unlike conventional systems. And the system is inherently adapted. So no matter where you locate the radios, no matter where people walk around with their phones, it's always calculating what it needs to translate. So those interfering signals create perfect channels for each device. So it's a much easier system to put in, much less expensive. And ultimately this will allow mobile operators or private network operators to offer dramatically less expensive mobile service that is far higher performance and far more reliable. So what stops the world's phone companies from adopting this technology at scale so that entire cities can uh, have their users you know, receiving mobile bandwidth at the same time at, at high rates rather than the underwhelming experiences that traditional 5G has delivered over the past half decade? I mean, I still see 5G just underperforming. It's, it's really been the opposite of what we were promised. Well, so, you know, we had to wait really, I don't know, five years for this to five year uh, for 5G to play out. But mm. when 5G was first being announced, when we would talk about P-cell and its capabilities, we'd often hear, well, we don't need it because 4G is going to be a big leap forward to 5G mm. and it's going to be, it's going to achieve all the performance improvements that you guys have been talking about. Well, we had to let it play out. We're not big enough to go up against the juggernaut of mm. this 5G message. Well, now I was reading recently in a, um, on a, on a mobile uh, publication, someone who wrote an op-ed article where they, they said that, um, listen, 5, 5G is not all bad. There are some things that are good. You know what I mean? So it's finally come around that the general view is that 5G has not significantly improved things. And of course, we all knew that. It's, it's literally 15%, 1-5% better than 4G. Other than that, mm -hmm. it's quite similar. And yeah. so it's a, it's a small step forward. It has a few more features, a few more things you can do with it. I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but it isn't a leapfrog. And the world needs a leapfrog. And so P-Cell has, has been a leapfrog. P-Cell running on 4G runs 10 times faster than the most advanced 5G technology in the world. And of course, P-Cell also runs on 5G. So, you know, um, it really is the case that it's a, a, a dramatic step forward. So um, you asked about what, is there anything in the way of operators adopting it? No, there isn't. Hmm. Uh, and look, they have every reason to be skeptical. We're a small company compared to the very large companies used to uh, work with, and they need to be cautious. And what's great about uh, having worked with Bolden, Bolden is very well respected. They've done lots of deployments for mobile operators, and they have taken the time to really look at this technology and see it working in, in 
for example, this urban proof, proof of concept in a subway station, mm -hmm. very complex RF environment. And we've also deployed in a stadium for them where they tested it, et cetera. And so to the extent somebody would like to have a very high performance network that's less expensive to install and faster to install, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> so what has the uh, reception been like over the past couple of days? I mean, I understand that Bolden will be at MWC in Barcelona next week, where um, no doubt they'll be getting a lot of attention as well. Yeah, I mean, reception is, it's always difficult being a company in the mobile infrastructure space if the name of your company is not one of the big infrastructure players. Mm. It's, you know, um, the, the world has the amount of, the number of players that there used to be who are contributing different things has really uh, come down to just a few very, very large ones. And for some mobile operators, they really rely on these large infrastructure players in order to do um, installations and things like that. So it, it's always harder when you're smaller to try to get uh, the time and attention. And to do that, we need to partner with someone bigger than us. I mean, we're a vendor, but we need people that are, are in the business of doing large scale installations whether urban, subway, or um, you know, uh, venue, offices, et cetera. So for us, um, you know, having Bolden completely changes the discussion when we speak to yeah. a, a large operator. It really changes it. And the other thing is that, of course, because PCEL is a software radio network, I mean, it can emulate 3G, 4G, 5G, the end user doesn't have to do anything different. It's it's the network that is installed in the office or the subway or Times Square, wherever it is that, that changes and is, is able to deliver much better connectivity. But the end user, they don't know any different, right? That's correct. Well, the only thing they know is that their performance is very uniform and high performing. Yeah, um, suddenly, but, suddenly they're, oh, my 5G is working. That's correct. They the don't need, they don't, you know, we work with SIMs, eSIMs, um, you know, there's um, the, the various different ways that a mobile network, suppose you have a mo, uh, an MVNO, you know, a mobile virtual network operator who yeah. wants to share a network. Well, we work with, you know, Guacan, Moken, and Moran. If you don't know what those acronyms are, they basically are all ways that a single uh, uh, VRAN, a single network can be shared by different operators who are reaching different SIM cards to their customers. Mm -hmm. Plus we can give a mobile operator an entire network, the equipment for themselves from, you know, from uh, their core, all the way down to the user. From the user's point of view, it's transparent. From the operator's point of view, it's transparent. The only difference is that it's very fast and inexpensive to install, and it it's dramatically higher performance use of their existing spectrum. So um, it, it's we try to make it as easy as possible. Now, uh... We've got plenty more to talk about. Uh, I've got so many questions I want to ask, but we do need to take a break. Now, I just wanted to say here that um, I'm just looking for my, uh, where is my little section here? I've just gone past it. And this is about how, uh, here we go. Where is it? Where is it? Yeah, look, we're just going to go to a break. I'll do this other break a little bit later on. <laughs> Sorry about that. See you soon. TNT's Dean Mackin. Some would argue where it comes to Julian Assange, he has more than done his time, whether that be self-imposed or where he currently finds himself locked up. But just that time that he spent in the Ecuadorian embassy, that was way more time than he ever should have served. And what did he do? He told the truth. Somehow you would think if you were new to this world, if you were a visiting alien, if you were a child who was growing up in this world, you would learn quickly that if you tell the truth, if you advocate for what's right, 
you'll be punished. Apparently, that's the lesson to be learned. Dean Mackin on today's News Talk TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk CO2 sustains all life on Earth, but now it's in long-term decline. We face the return of an ice age. We mandate that the truth be told. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Thanks for joining me back on uh, Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov right now. Steve, Artemis Peace Cell Technology, as you've explained, is more resilient and much faster than existing 5G networks. And I know that you're not a cybersecurity company, but uh, does Peace Cell Technology offer a more secure and harder to disrupt and attack uh, network and infrastructure, especially given that we just had AT&T go down, which nothing to do with, with you guys, nothing to do with the cybersecurity, uh, cyber attack. But, uh, you know, is your technology more secure and harder to disrupt? Uh, it is. I mean, I don't know what it is, um, you know, that happens at and 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 or you know how that relates to what we're talking about. Um, sure. But uh, in terms of someone trying to attack the network, um, of course, you know, both four G and five G have built in crypt uh, cryptography. But if you are able to get the crypto keys through one's means or another, hacker is able to do that. You can listen into the network anywhere in the cell. And then you can listen to everything that's being transmitted. All right. Mm. And um, with um, with P-Cell, even if you are, if a hacker gets their hands on the keys, they still cannot listen in. And the reason is that um, we have physical layer security. Now, crypto uh, is, you know, uh, cryptography layer security where it's actually in the data. So, you know, you can you receive the data and hopefully the cryptography keeps you from seeing what the data is. With P-Cell, you can't even see the data um, because if you think about it, all these radio waves are these interfering signals. And the only place where the data is complete is at the point of reception for the user, the, the, the user who is designated to be the receiver. A person who is a listener who's not that user is going to see, you know, just garbage. Now, it's a new technology. We've waited. We've published uh, for now 10 years and we've waited to see whether or not someone comes up with some sort of way to get around what we think is a very robust security system. Thus far, thus, thus far, no one has said, hey, if you do this, this, and this, there's a way to get around it. So to our knowledge, thus far, there is no way to intercept a P-cell system, uh, a P-cell transmission. And yeah. uh, even if someone got their hands on the crypto keys, your transmission would still be very secure. There's been interest, for example, um, where you have embassies in other countries, for example, where they're using the, the cell phone network of the um, the mobile network in the country they're in, mm -hmm. but they're worried about the country will have access to their crypto keys and can listen into their conversations. Well, so with P-Cell, if they set up a private network in the, around the embassy, for example, uh, it doesn't matter. You won't be able to intercept the signals or intercept the, um, the conversations at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Australia, Huawei was banned from 
being part of the 5G network because there was concern that they were going to be allowing the Chinese government to listen in. And the only reason I mention AT&T is because in Australia, we had a major outage with our number two telco Optus, where everybody realized, hey, this is, you know, we need our phones, we need our digital wallets, we couldn't yeah. book Ubers, you couldn't do these things. And of course, with AT&T happening just this past week in the US, people were concerned it was a cyber attack. So if there's a system that is stronger and more resilient, then, you know, bring it on. Now, one thing I uh, would love to know, how did you think of the P-cell solution? You know, we, we know about Hedy Lamar, which was a, a very famous US actress. She did a lot of pioneering work in this field uh, during the Second World War. So, you know, we were inspired by her. What gave you the idea? Um, well, I had developed a technology called the Moxie Media Center. It was a cable and satellite set-top box, and it would receive digital signals. And we were using then the earliest versions of Wi-Fi to go to, say, a second room, if you want to watch television in another room. And I yeah. realized that you really could not reliably carry HD to another room. And I began to realize that, you know, I think, you know, soon it's going to be the case that people are going to want over mobile networks to go and get video. And that's going to be the primary consumer of video. Um, and I looked at how much spectrum there was and where the technology is going. I'm saying, we're eventually going to run out. So I began to think of all these different ways that you could possibly do things, um, you know, configuring wireless systems in a way that would overcome this limitation. And I don't know, after a couple hundred iterations later, finally came up with a configuration that we have and we simulated it and we could find no upper limit to the capacity for a given amount of spectrum. And, you know, we almost didn't believe it. So, you know, yeah. um, we built it and tried it and we kept on adding more and more capacity and sure enough, it worked. And then it was a matter um, of, you know, this is uh, the 2000s, it was a matter of bringing this into a, you know, a commercially viable system, which is a huge amount of optimization, refinements and so forth. And then we really had to wait until LTE came out because LTE mm -hmm. is, a, a, you know, an IP based technology and it has the characteristics that we could then build our technology into. So, you know, we're never going to, as a small company, we're never going to get the world to change what phones they use, you know, the standards they do. So we had to go and make our technology work with the existing standards. And we got that. And of course, we announced that in 2014. In fact, we, we announced it. Um, we just did, you know, this announcement with Bolden on Wednesday. And mm -hmm. we announced that was the 21st of February. We announced it in 2014 on the 14th. So it took 10 years and one week for us to go from our announcement to a uh, a large scale deployment in Times Square. <laughs> well, I remember, yeah, I remember first reading about uh, your white paper on Dido, distributed input, distributed output, where you effectively uh -huh. explained how this worked. And at the time you said it was gonna take at least a decade for, the, for it to be commercialized. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, it reminds me very much of William Gibson who wrote Neuromancer and wrote the, uh, the book, The Peripheral, which was a TV show on Amazon just recently. And he said that uh, the future has already been invented. It just hasn't been widely distributed yet. And you were a great example of that. Yeah, well, I mean, that is the way these things are. I mean, it takes, there's one thing to go and, and make something work, you know, mm. uh, and show that the concept is there. It's quite another thing to make things um, that are, are widely available, easily installed, um, you know, reliable, robust, and secure, and so forth. You know, that takes years of refinement. And, mm. um, you know, I, I've, I've come to accept that as, as the nature of things that are worth doing. You just, yeah. you got to give them time. And uh, then when you get there, like, wow, okay, so now we can change the world.
Yeah, absolutely. Well, another thing that's been changing the world is AI. Mm -hmm. It's been uh, mm -hmm. around for decades, but really it captured the public imagination, entered the zeitgeist when ChatGBT 3.5 burst onto the scene in November 2022. Now, since then, we've seen GPT-4 in March last year. Then in mm -hmm. November, we saw GPT-4 Turbo. And in the next month or two, we're all expecting GPT-5 to blow us all away yet again. So how have you been working with AI? You know, how has it changed your world and the Artemis range of products and services? Well, we've been using AI. I mean, um, uh, we've been using, you know, generative AI and machine learning for a number of different things just in the course of our work. So we've embraced these tools um, early on and, and made them, you know, um, and in embracing them, you learn a lot about them. Okay, we haven't announced anything about products that are based on uh, AI, but uh, we have been doing some really cool stuff. And uh, when it comes out, we'll certainly let you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. And then also, we've seen OpenAI launch its Sora text-to-video capabilities, huh? which are blowing people away by being surprisingly realistic. So what other yeah. surprises, just in general in AI, are you expecting to see, not just this year, but through to 2020, uh, sorry, through to the end of the decade, 2030 and beyond? So, so I think we're going to see um, between now and 2030, there's going to be a, a huge transformative effect that's going to have on society. So, you know, look what we've seen in one year. We've gone from um, still videos, which, you know, only some of them are useful to, mm. you know, as you saw with Sora, a minute long video that have certain have problems. They're having some yeah. trouble with physics and this and that and so forth, but still they're quite impressive. Um, there are other things that are, are sort of behind the scenes that um, I, I would say that um, people have not yet probably run into. And that is you, these things are, are extremely good right now at doing what they want to do. Um, if you give them a, a, a description that's fairly short, it will go and create a, an incredibly beautiful thing, but it's version of it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the if you try, there are tools out there, for example, that are real-time uh, generative AI systems where you can change the parameters, you know, uh, and they respond in less than a second with the new image and so mm -hmm. forth. If you If you play around with those tools for a bit, you begin to realize that there's a set of images it can do but the set of images that it can't do, um, or it doesn't know how to do just yet. That will change. You know, I'm, I'm confident that all these things will be be worked on and fixed. And so um, as impressive as it is, for now, if you're okay with what it creates, you're good, which for example, can be useful for a, a lot of things. I'd say the, the earliest things you're gonna see it affect are things like uh, stock images, stock video, where you, you don't really need it to be exactly what you want, but it's good enough for, you know, the um, uh, an ad or, or maybe a, um, a picture to go with a headline in an article. But as far as replacing um, filmmakers and, and so on, we're, we're still a ways from that. But, yeah. but there's no question that this is a dramatic step forward. You know, AI, I think people don't necessarily realize that this is as much a discovery to some degree over the last five you know, to 10 years as it is an invention. You know, when I've spoken to people that I, I know, I certainly know everyone, um, I think people are, are rather surprised at how well it does work. And um, the, 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 I think that the impact it's gonna have on society is, is nothing short of profound. Um, and I, you know, one of the things I think of is in the 1970s, when the first microprocessors came out and the first mm -hmm. desktop computers came out, we could suddenly go and make machines that instead of having a relatively fixed set of things that they do, 
could now be programmed if you know how to use a, a kind of a language called a programming language and you were skilled in that thing. And you could have them do a task with a level of complexity. And then they became these tools that were so incredibly useful for what we do and they've accelerate what we do. Um, and one of the things that I, I always remember is Steve Jobs, I think made a very good analogy. He said that a computer is like a bicycle for the mind. And indeed mm -hmm. it is. You basically, it amplifies what you already want to do as this tool and can do things that, you know, have a level of complexity that was unimaginable before we had desktop computers. Well, if computers are a bicycle for the mind, I think that AI is going to be like a rocket ship for the mind because it takes us so far away. And instead of being limited to the people that understand programming language and doing exactly what they're asked, what you, you're told, in fact, to the point where if, if there's a bug in your code, it will just stop, right? We are now talking about systems which understand human languages and they are able to go and take what you say and, and take off with it and do something with it. So this is both um, hugely empowering in terms of what it can do in terms of tools, but it also opens up the world to a much, much wider audience for people to be who could be creators than just the people that could code, all right? And to go in and try to suggest, you know, in the 1970s that we'd someday have a phone in your pocket, which would do all the different things that our, our smartphones do, you know, I don't think anyone had that level of vision in terms of how, you know, to pick up on all the useful things that we're doing with phones today. It's the same thing with AI. Uh, we can't imagine what they're gonna do. I do know now that, you know, you have kids that have are that uh, have lived their whole lives in a world with smartphones and the web. That's all they mm -hmm. know and a very different perspective on the world than, than older people do. You're gonna have kids who are never know a world without AI, without the ability yeah. to actually talk to a machine without a tool that can create wonderful uh, images that can can synthesize your dreams, all right? That can help you in understanding things in areas that uh, you can't even see, like microscopic things if you're developing new drugs or medications. So the future is extremely exciting. This is not a small event that we're seeing now. It's a transformative event. It's on the, on the scale of, of what we saw with the microprocessor. Really is a big deal. Look, I absolutely believe that. And, you know, I mean, just little things like being able to, um, into Sora, you can just add a video that you've made and ask it to change that. And so that made me think that, well, all the old TV shows, like all the episodes of Star Trek, The Next Generation or the original Star Trek, you just fit all that into a um, into Sora or a similar system. And you say, right, you know what they look like? You know what they sound like? Just here's the scripts, create us new episodes. Um I mean, that'll just be something that kids will do in, in, you know, they'll just muck around and play with that and it'll just be totally normal to them. And you said that you thought people uh, couldn't think up these ideas in the 70s, didn't realize that we would have phones and and what AI would do. But I would have to disagree in the sense that I've read so many uh, science fiction novels from Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and so many other people that uh, some of these things have been dreamt up, you know, quite extensively. But um, of course, you know, what we saw from, from the world of science fiction doesn't always quite translate. Or I mean, many of the things that we, we read about or i read about as a youngster finally now coming true and if i ever do have any children they will as you said they will be born into a world where we take all of these things for granted and uh, mm -hmm. yeah i really find that to be super exciting yeah, i agree with you i mean um look I, I was a star trek fan too and you know look at you had a communicator they would open it up but yeah 
you know, and the same time, not everybody was, uh, you know, using speakerphones, you know, they would do this. <laughs> yeah. Or there was, and then you had Jordi LaForge with his headset, you know, yeah. and uh, Star Trek Next Generation. You have the holodeck, you know, so we have a number of different things that, that are coming into, uh, into reality. But, you know, there's other things they didn't quite get right. You know, the first Star Trek had tapes and cathode ray tubes for the yeah. displays and so forth. So, you know, um, some of it, as far as, you know, some of the vision on the broader ideas, of course, you know, we do get these ideas from science fiction novels, but um, the execution on the details very often leads to new things. Like, for example, the idea of being able to do transactions in a phone you carry with you, you know, mm -hmm. people don't think of that. Then again, the tricorder could go and diagnose disease, which is not unlike a watch, which can go and, you know, uh, check on some of your vital signs and so forth. So yeah. we we have we have different things that have, have led to where we are. It's um, you know, it's the job of, of innovators to go and um, find a way to actually execute on these things, make them practical. And then um, the details on what they are uh, really, really comes down to how people use them and uh, what is commercially viable. Absolutely. Now, we're going to take a quick break. I just want to say that if you missed your favorite TNT show or interview, you can simply listen or watch it when you want, wherever you want. Just visit the episodes on the TNT Radio website on rumble.com, bitshoot or brighteon.com. We are also on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Podbean, iHeart and TuneIn. So now there is no reason to miss out on anything on today's news talk. TNT. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Dr. Matthew Wilicki is a bit like Dr. Judith Curry. Both of them were prominent academics in their field, and they left their field because of the fact they could not put up with the whole global warming missive. And of course, they have become outcasts. Dr. Curry actually had some of her background at Penn State, and she has been called some mean and nasty names by Michael Mann, to a point where I don't understand why she hasn't sued him for libel and slander, but it's her life. In any case, Dr. Wilicki has this idea about rethinking climate change metrics. Now, this is not an old idea. In fact, one of my professors at Penn State back in the 70s said that temperature is a third-rate way of measuring climate, and he's right, because the temperature can spread apart from what we call the dew point. What is a better way to measure climate is with what we call wet bulbs. But better than that, the best of all is water vapor. We have something that we work with as meteorologists called saturation mixing ratios. And it shows a direct correlation between the amount of water vapor in the air and the temperature. So why aren't we quantifying water vapor? You know why? Because it will reveal that water vapor is the main driving force behind the warming. Now what's causing extra water vapor? Well, it's not extra CO2 in the air, it's the warming oceans. What's warming the oceans? That's not from the extra CO2 in the air either. So Dr. Wilicki's idea of rethinking climate change metrics is an excellent idea. And we should be quantifying water vapor. Fat chance given $63 trillion is already behind this whole net zero agenda. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. see it coming. It's pre-diabetes, and it captures one in three adults. But you can escape 
Take the one-minute pre-diabetes risk test to know where you stand and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Be your own hero on smartphones everywhere at doihaveprediabetes.org. Alex Zaharoff-Royt is talking tech on today's News Talk TNT. Thank you again for joining me. I'm with Steve Pullman, the uh, inventor of so many different things. In fact, we're going to talk about the Mac and the phonograph behind you. But Steve, before we get there, one of the many things that you've done in your career was to invent the core video technologies behind QuickTime, which is still used in all of Apple's products today. And you were an Apple principal scientist. So what was it like working with Apple at that time, not only creating the future, but working with the other famous Steve, Steve Jobs? Well, I only actually met Steve um, briefly in uh, 1985 when I was interviewing for Apple. And then um, I didn't meet him again because we were working on the color Macintosh sort of secretly. Uh, and then I did meet Steve one one more time later in life um, um, around, I'd say about 2000 or so. But I never worked with him. I have enormous admiration for him and just incredible things he's done. Um, but uh, we were actually tasked with taking this, the 128K Mac, uh, mm -hmm. which I, will have. <laughs> and when I saw that thing, I saw an ad for that thing in the New York Times, a big spread. And I, mm -hmm. I managed to see the video of, of Steve's introduction of it. I had to have one. I had to code it. And I had to find a way to go and create larger screens and color and everything I wanted to do with it. And so I just kept calling people at Apple until I got an interview and ended up having three interviews there. One of them with Steve and then uh, uh, with two other teams. Came out to Apple in early 1985. And the team we, we I joined ended up developing all the media technology, the graphics, the sound, um, and so on. And then we introduced the Color Macintosh in 1987. And um, the other thing that my team was was developing was how we could do how we could go and get video to play on a Macintosh. And we had a chicken and egg problem in the sense that the only way at the time to uh, decompress video and play it back was with a chip that you'd have to have on a board and nobody had that right so mm. who would buy the board because there's no content that worked on it and then who would create the content if there's no boards out there you know what i mean so we had a chicken and egg problem so it occurred to us that if we could go and get the algorithm simple enough for playing back video so it ran in software and did not require any added hardware then okay, maybe we can go and break this chicken egg thing and get it out there. And indeed, that's what came out of it. And the first algorithm that was developed in my team um, uh, was something called Road Pizza. And we unfortunately had an intern name that. We said, you know, squishes things, whatever. So yeah. unfortunate name, but the, uh, and then we were able to show that, you know, video would play on a little screen on uh, in a little window for now. And then um, Bruce Leak and the rest of the QuickTime team took it and created a, a great architecture around it, which made it very flexible. So you have different kinds of compressors, could scale to you know faster CPUs, bigger screens, um, you know better graphics hardware, and so forth. And that led to QuickTime as we know it today. And it's still being used. I mean, one of the things you have behind you is not only a uh, an original phonograph, which I would love you to tell me about, but you, and that uh -huh. was like the first. Uh, you know, media player that was a, right. a machine. But you also have another device behind you, which is the uh, Apple Vision Pro, which I'm assuming yes. is still using QuickTime too. So tell us about both of those. Yeah, so I don't know um, the details of, of what this is using in, certain, uh, in terms of formats for video, but, um, mm. it you know, of course, it, it, you can play beautiful videos that are uh, full screen, 4K, you know, IMAX quality. 
And beyond that, you can, of course, play things that are stereo, you know, so you see it both eyes and it's immersive. Mm. So it's, it's remarkable um, how wonderful the experience with this thing. But it is it is big, heavy, um, you know, it's very limited right now in terms of the number of applications and so forth for it. So, I and it, you know, you need a separate battery hooked up to it and so forth. So there's a lot of things about this that are, which are, are not quite as polished as you might like them to be, mm. but it does give you a vision of the future. And I've heard a lot of yeah. people saying, oh, this is like the first iPhone. And I'm going to have to disagree with them. I see this as more like the first Macintosh. Uh, and by the way, it's the 40 year anniversary of the first Macintosh this year, yeah, right? It is. And because um, when I got the first Macintosh, I felt a lot like this. I said, okay, this is a brave new world. There's a lot of potential here and so forth. But there was Mac Write and there was Mac Paint and a couple mm -hmm. other things. You could see the potential for sure. Yeah. But it, it was very hard to replace, you know, use that as your only computer. And very few people did. And then, of course, we brought another. Uh, you know, I was part of the team that that did make the Mac more practical and and it became more practical even beyond that, you know, as time has gone on. With the iPhone, in my view, you know, we had the iPod at that point that was a lot of people had and was quite mature. And we had cell phones, which were quite mature. And then we melded them together. But when someone bought a brand new iPhone, it was immediately useful to them. And mm. it was immediately cool. And it didn't have a lot of apps for sure in the very beginning, but you could play all the all the music you wanted and so forth. This thing here in my experience with it is, is is so new in the way it does things and the way you use it and so forth that it, it's going to take just a little bit of time um, mm -hmm. before I think it, it becomes a full mainstream device. But I'm absolutely confident that it will get there. All right. And that's what's so exciting about it because you can get a preview of the future, not unlike the preview we had way back then. Um, but I, this is even more developed, of course, because the Apple ecosystem that it becomes part of is developed, just the content for it and so forth is still very new. But um, the thing I'm also excited about is not an Apple product, but something which gives you a little bit of a sense of what is a very practical device. And that is this, if you haven't seen it, it's the- Oh, yes. It's the Ray-Ban Meta uh, smart glasses. And the reason I'm excited about this is that it is, it's no different to anybody who sees it than a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I know a lot of people that just love these things and wear them. So like people pop out the, the sunglasses and put in their prescription glasses and wear them all day. And it doesn't have a cable hooked up to it. It's not heavy. Uh, it's immediately useful. You can make phone calls with it. You can listen to music. Uh, you can, there's a camera. You can shoot pictures and video. I know people are already using it. So like, if you know, if you're going somewhere and you just want to, capture what you're doing without having to take, use your hands to pick up a phone. You know, if you go to a game uh, at an event, you can, you have them on and it's the last few seconds of the game, some crazy plays going on. You don't have to be holding up your phone to capture it. You let this thing do it. Right. And mm -hmm. it, it, there is a way you can go and invoke the, um, you know, their AI system and uh, ask questions and so forth because you're a little view of the future. It doesn't have the video display that this thing does. It's not enclosed. Mm -hmm. It's not immersive. It doesn't have all the processing and so forth. So you're at these two extremes. Here is something which is every feature you can imagine. And you know, in most cases, it does the best, you know, best in class. It's quite expensive. Here is something that's a few hundred dollars that looks just like sunglasses and is really, really useful. So if you can imagine this in this form factor, um, it's probably not going to be completely enclosing in that case, right? Because you're not blocking mm -hmm. off all the light. But 
we're not that far away. And the reason I believe we're not that far away is because of, you know, devices that you can buy, which are not as polished as a platform, but are about the same size, like these Xreal uh, AR glasses. Now, these glasses have, you know, uh, uh, two 1080p OLED displays in them. You put them on and you can watch a, um, I can take a little cover. There you go. and see through it. And you can watch a, um, you know, a 3D movie, a, you know, um, you could, in theory, you could do AR, but it doesn't have all the capability for the tracking and so forth. But the key thing is that it's able to put up a very high quality uh, video display in a form factor that's very close to that of, you know, uh, Meta Ray-Bans. Mm. So if you, and then there's a, another company called Brilliant Labs, which is coming out with some, uh, what they call, I think, frames, which have it even, or even thinner, they're lower resolution and so forth, but they are battery powered and so forth. So we're seeing now all of these hints, if you will, of this shows what's possible, okay? Yeah, absolutely. This shows what's now, and this shows what's coming, all right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we are going to see people begin to move for many applications away from the phone as the first place they go and to head wearables. And yeah. what I think is very significant about that, by the way, is that these are going to put a demand on the mobile network that's like nothing anyone's ever seen before. Yeah. Um, because I mean, already these can stream so they can, they, on the uplink, they, they can go and stream, you know, um, to your, you know, to Instagram or something like that. And then they're putting a lot of demand in the network. When people start using these for that purpose and also for watching things that are, are you know, live video things or just, you know, uh, HD video, and they're walking around, they're, they can't rely on Wi-Fi. And mm -hmm. eventually they're doing a version of these things, I'm sure, that have mobile connectivity in them. And it's going to be a great thing because you'll be able to do, you'll be able to get your messages, you'll be able to look at things if you're doing like Google you know, maps, it will give you directions with arrows as you're walking and so forth, or even when you're driving, you know. So there's a lot of great things that are going to come from wearables like this. And I, I have no doubt that given the resources and the talents at Apple, that all the capabilities we're seeing here are someday going to be uh, reduced to something about this size. Yeah, the, that company, Brilliant, with, with the frames, I did speak about them last week, and, yes. and those are glasses that look round. And and yes, you can look through them, and they do have that uh, in in vision augmented reality display showing you directions and translations. So yes, we're seeing the very beginnings of this, and it's very exciting. Yes. It's a very exciting time to be alive. But one of the things that all these devices will need, and we've only got a couple of minutes left, so we have to be quick. But uh, mm -hmm. you've got all these different patents, but one of them is for wireless power, and we've heard of companies uh -huh. like uh, Osseo and Energis who are working on this. But uh, you know, what what is Artemis doing with wireless power? You you was it all still top secret? So we've had wireless power systems working for quite some time. Uh, we haven't announced or released anything yet. Uh, I can tell you it's really, really cool. Um, so, we, you know, like, for example, we were able, we've done demonstrations where you have wireless power powering um, uh, cars, you know, uh, um, you know, like model cars where they're, mm. they're running around. They don't need any track or anything, and they're, they can run for as long as you want through power by wireless. So we're able to go and control wire uh, power at very high, high power but safe which is uh, tricky to do. You got to make sure yeah. that it doesn't hurt anybody. Um, and also you need to be able to reach devices. We just haven't released anything yet. I mean, you know, sometimes we 
we work on things and we don't yet see a product incarnation or a business model to to release something. And so we focus on the things that we, we can do, you know? Well, Steve, look, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. I would love to speak to you again in the future. We're just running sure. out of time. We've had the whole hour with you talking about the future and it's just incredibly, it's a privilege to speak with you. So thank you very much for your time. And yeah. uh, I'd love to talk to you again. Now, this is TNT Radio. You can join me again with Chris Smith on Wednesdays at 4.30 p.m. in Australian time on demand as well. And I'll be back next week with more. This is TNTradio.life. Thank you so much.